What's in the box? Smoke. Pure smoke. <laughs> and mirrors. Imagine seven, but it ends with Brad Pitt. He opens a box and it's just a cloud of weed smoke. And he's just like, <laughs> and he's just like, whoa, that's the oh, eighth deadly sin. Getting baked. Getting. Oh, God. <laughs> well, didn't he like say that in the 90s, he just spent like the whole decade just getting bonged into oblivion? And being depressed. That is the exact quote. Yeah. He wanted to avoid the fame machine. Getting bombed so into just, oblivion. I mean, I feel it. Yeah. I feel it, brother. Yeah. You know, I got almost 4K followers on Twitter. Sometimes you got to smoke, put a smoke screen in between yourself and the public. Mm-hmm. I recently yeah. remembered that there's a Danny Brown song or like, no, it's like some EDM producer featuring Danny Brown called The Black Brad Pitt. Was, I was like really into that in like 2014. Thought it was really fun. Very like EDM festival rap mm-hmm. era. You know, that's what everybody praises Danny Brown for is the versatility. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah. also kind of, I don't know, he's still very critically acclaimed, but I've kind of fallen off with him and don't really keep up as much because it's yeah. just sort of felt like a, a run the jewels effect. I don't know. Just like very like plaster wooden albums just album objects that are just 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 beats and bars yeah and they just feel kind of like i don't know it's kind of like these they're just these like museum pieces they're just like wow isn't this like great art best new music like and i just it's just i need something a little more rough around the edges they both have that prestige reference kind of yeah kind of rap yeah but I do. I mean, Danny Brown has some great stuff. And also that being said, he, he has he has a wide I have like I, I have like a whole folder of like all of his features on like insane clown posse songs and shit. So he's out there. Anyways, that's unrelated to anything. Um, how are you doing? How are you doing, Seth? I'm pretty, pretty good. Surprise. We're recording this pretty soon after I got the first vaccination shot. Yeah. Um, after I got that 5G chip. Damn. And I don't really feel anything different at the moment. That's what Bill Gates you know? wants you to feel. Mm-hmm. He, he wants normal. you to. 
you know, the devil, the greatest trick the devil ever played was injecting you with a vaccine that was actually a 5G chip and you didn't know. Yeah. Um, God, I just referenced, uh, I just referenced two Kevin Spacey movies in like five minutes. This is bad. We got to start this episode over. Uh, oh, um, that's I was, crazy. I was, was going to talk about his Call of Duty game later, you know? Wow. Oh, damn. We can't. Uh, yeah. We hit the quota, the canceled quota. Um, I was going to say, you know, you got, we're recording this on, on St. Patrick's Day. You got the vaccine on St. Patrick's Day. Yeah. Back to uh, me, I'm Irish. Yeah. Are you of Irish extraction? Uh, historically what? speaking, like are, your heritage? Allegedly. I mean, I have like red hair, which I right. guess like makes me assume so. And I've been told, <laughs> I've been told uh, that we're, I believe, like Irish immigrants, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm from the south is where I'm from. Right. Exactly. No, it's the same thing like with like because my mom's side is Mormon, like they have their whole family history charted out, but my dad's side, which is the really southern non-Mormon primitive Baptist side, you know, it just kind of goes back to Alabama and disappears and they're just like, "Oh, yeah. I think That's we got exactly some exactly where mine I think, happened." I think we got some Scotch Irish in there, you know, maybe a Cherokee princess, you know, like down the line yeah. and it's just mm -hmm. okay. You start getting into really like, like double digit, triple digit fractions. Yeah. <laughs> um, or not fractions, I guess, you know, maybe uh, whatever the bottom number is, denominator. Denominator, numerator, yeah. common denominator. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> well, uh, you came up kind of with a, seg a, a segment title for this segment that we always do, which I think is pretty great. Top of the box, which feels fitting because it's St. Patty's Day. Top of the box to you. That wasn't mm -hmm. an Irish accent. I'm so sorry. That was like English. That was co colonialist accent. I, it was very light, though. Forgot your Western accents. Yeah. What can I say? I need to you watch call a little bit. An Anglophile. <laughs> I need to watch a little bit more Peaky Blinders. Yeah. Goodness. So but what yeah, if this is the the top of the box op or opening the box? Opening the um, box. The unboxing. Wow, I think, I think this is unboxing is a good term, but it doesn't reference like the beginning or the top, which I feel like is kind of crucial. Mm -hmm. um, the top in terms of, the... of actions and how much we talk about like YouTube and stuff on this. I feel like that's just. An unfortunately good title that doesn't fit it is it's a great it's a great title um it's also just makes me want to like insert a like brad pitt what's in the box sound clip like every time we do this now <laughs> you know some real just like howard stern sound effects shit might do it so what have you been consuming media wise recently um let's see i guess we talk a lot about or we mention you know call of duty and stuff on here just because that's 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 uh that's the hangout spot the yeah. only one we got it's where we live um, yeah it's the country club yeah but i started playing apex legends again recently which came out like 
I guess like three years ago or something. I don't know, mm-hmm. which I really liked the game when it came out. I was a huge fan of Titanfall 2. You know, Respawn Entertainment makes good games with guns in them. Um, so, you know, you got to show out for that. Um, but I played it a bunch at first and then I stopped for a while. Um, and I started playing it again recently just to mix up the vibes. And mm-hmm. also, not everybody uh, plays the same games I do, you know. Yeah, but, sometimes you've got to meet other people on their turf. Yeah, which it's like, I mean, it's still good. It's like hero based. So you have like characters that have individual like, uh, you know, abilities and stuff like that, that like charge mm-hmm. over time or they're passive or they're like have like kind of a short re- um, recharge timer. But so, I mean, it's kind of like Overwatch in that way. And then you can compose your team to have these like interesting combinations of like seeing where people are while you have a smoke screen down so they can't see you and that kind of stuff um so it's fun but i mean compared to like compared to something like warzone does feel like it's a little bit for babies yeah i mean that's obviously i think apex legends is still like less baby than fortnite yeah but that's how i felt playing fortnite i'm just like okay this was just like fisher price shit like yeah but i do like though it's not um, like we're i mean i feel like we're criticizing on terms of like photorealism (laughs) or something like that which no it is something that like tracks with what we're saying but it's not just like graphic style that we're criticizing no i don't yeah i don't even think it's like that kind of style it's like it's just sort of like the the skill set and the challenge it presents and like the way it makes you strategize and communicate I think it's just so kind of specific and, and on another level with something like Warzone. not, mm. and it's not like, it's not even like a literal, like stylistic visual preference for me. It's just like, that's what the photo kind of the photorealistic sort of genre of shooters entails more is that sort of like challenging gameplay. I, if there were like a really sort of like sci-fi challenging battle royale, I would lo- like love that. But I just, yeah. I mean, Apex can be that. It's just like at times it it can be like crazy fast. Um, I don't know. It's it's definitely fun, but, you know, I play it and in my first day I get like two mm-hmm. wins, you know. Mm-hmm. I sound like I'm bragging, but this is a uh, this is elite this, gamer zone. Yeah, this is just elite gamer zone. You know, some people say that gamers only have or that gamers actually have no life but i game so i can live many you have a rich you have a rich life <laughs> inner life yeah exactly yeah. respawn i mean i mean that's the thing about something like apex though versus warzone is it allows you allows you to live more life it's just like being able to load in faster yeah which is just like one of the real drawbacks to warzone is like we spend so much time like maybe a third of the time honestly sometimes like out of the game yeah i know well that's kind of the thing is that like when i first started playing it i was like oh this thing's not really as broken in some of the ways that are not broken just really like obtuse in some of the ways that warzone is in terms of like you know taking like from the time you click like start this game or like turn on like start the application Mm -hmm. you know it can be 10 minutes before you're playing a game and then a game you know you get you gotta loot you gotta get set up for like five or ten minutes it's just this, yeah. this big, it's an ordeal in a way that Apex is not. So the games are a little bit less like 
you invest less in each of them, but it is kind of easier to like kind of flow through a bunch of them just because they're very light. Um, but yeah, it's interesting though, because Respawn Entertainment was actually formed by the founders of Infinity Ward after they left um, the Call of Duty franchise and after like Modern Warfare 2, which would have been 2009 mm-hmm. or 10. Anyway, so now they're they're both in the Battle Royale market, Modern Warfare being made by Infinity Ward, which I guess Warzone isn't just tied to the Modern Warfare series. It's like there's this whole, there's like three developers that make Call of Duty, and now right. this one's just like its own like thing. But anyway, it's just interesting that these two are like kind of competing popular Battle Royales that are made by like a similar thought, like trust. Now, you know, you have this like image still of like the U.S. military, but it's formed out to different contractors, really. It's the same kind of thing a little bit. You have the brand and then like, but multiple entities sort of doing maintenance on it and um, propagating it. Yeah, well, that's I mean, Titanfall is like future warfare with all these like different like warring factions and stuff like that. And the politics of it is like. I mean, compared to Call of Duty, the politics in Apex Legends and the Titanfall universe that it comes from is like pretty underexplored. Mm-hmm. I don't know. In terms of like why people are even fighting this war and they have all these robots fighting the war for them and all this stuff. I mean, Call of Duty is like, for the most part, very underexplored in terms of like it's like political subtext and content mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. This is something that like i mean this is something that like game critics will like write about but this is not this has pretty much no effect on like the actual like consumer base of like call of duty you know yeah no definitely yeah yeah um it's it's thorny for sure i mean i think that like it's it's a similar situation sometimes to like film criticism a lot of the time where like it feels like to me in one hand, like really valuable and important to do kind of like critiques of things that are very obviously propaganda, but it's also like that criticism only can go so far and doesn't really do much to actually like it. Does, it's never really about like dissuading, you know, even yeah. if it's a negative critique, because you know, you're not gonna, you know, you're essentially like, if you're writing for a serious publication, you're kind of preaching to the choir with that sort of thing already. Um, yeah. I mean, I know nobody's, nobody's not guilty of, of yeah. this. And I've self published a blog post about like COD four and stuff like that, that yeah. you know, just stay on my blog and don't really go anywhere else. Like, yeah, you know, but there's a lot of meat there for sure. A lot of text. Oh yeah. It's always worth digging into, but I don't know. Sometimes you just explore it for yourself mm-hmm. and, and that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but what about you? Have you been consuming anything? I don't really, I don't want to talk much more about <laughs> my stuff. Cause we talked about games for like 12 minutes. Um, I mean, basically like, you know, I've, I've, I feel like for a while, my, viewing was just very podcast and work driven but the past couple of days or week or so i've been just sort of going on some random viewing tangents um and i finally watched this just one of those little curiosities forgotten gems that 
is basically made to like reside on your letterboxd watch list forever finally watched one of those the forgotten 1996 film bullets directed by julian temple um which kind of stood out to me at some point i probably saw somebody add it to their watch list or log it or something and like give it three stars and i was like oh this is a movie that stars tupac mickey rourke some other faces and it's directed by julian temple who if you're not familiar with him i mean really just kind of like very distinctive visual artist um did music videos for the sex pistols culture club abc sade just a litany of like english you know iconic english artists from the 80s and and kind of turn of like that era you know new wave post-punk era yeah. Um, and he made a couple of movies, uh, a couple of feature films, um, his debut movie, Absolute Beginners, which is this musical that has like uh, David Bowie and actually Sade, like both in like small kind of supporting roles. Um, and it's like very colorful and this sort of retro futuristic, almost a little bit like portrait of, of kind of swinging London. Um, and it's a real like visually bonkers movie, but I don't think that it entirely succeeds on a narrative level. And it was like a huge flop and he was sort of like a run out of the UK and considered like the death of English cinema. Cause this was like a $10 million movie, which was like a big money for the English Damn. film industry at that time. And what lost He's saying that he created Mike Lee. Basically, he made he made the English poor. It wasn't Margaret Thatcher. It was Julian Temple. Um, so he came to America. He made Earth Girls Are Easy with Jeff Goldblum. Uh, that was also not very successful. Um, and he made this movie in 1996, Bullet, um, which he got roped into basically because Mickey Rourke was like trying to pay off his gambling debts um, or like some kind of mob debts. And this was like a crime thriller set in Brooklyn. Uh, that was like about the mob and literally funded by the mob. Um, and so the reason why I finally caught up with this and also the reason why it was like sort of made available to me um, is because of my friend Steve McFarlane, uh, critic and programmer, who just recently a lot launched what I think is a really great substack called Element X Cinema. Um, obviously, elementxcinema.substack.com. It's like five bucks a month and it's the only Substack I pay for TBH. He's only two posts in, but he just did a like 25 year interview with Julian Temple about this forgotten movie. And it's like a really fascinating interview, even though Temple doesn't kind of remember a lot about the experience of making the movie. Uh, there's still a lot of great details in there just because, like I mentioned, you know, he was getting driven around by these like mob dudes who are basically making creative decisions for him. You know, like he had these mob location managers who would be like, oh, let's go to Coney Island and Julian Temple would be like oh like this diner looks great like let's shoot in there and he, the guys would be like no 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 we got to go to Vinny's diner like across the street like that's where you're going to shoot and Julian Temple didn't really realize that they were like mob guys at first and was kind of like hey like I'm the director and they're like no like we're, we're gonna we're calling the shots here like we're gonna shoot across the street at Vinny's place um, so the whole movie was a kind of series of shit like that and also Mickey Rourke was like struggling with a heroin addiction at the time the movie is about a heroin addict kind of two-bit small-time Jewish gangster who gets out of prison and so there are scenes in the movie of Mickey Rourke actually shooting up so he was kind of a mess during the production of the whole movie there were like gunfights and shootouts on set 
Tupac is actually not in the movie very much, even though he's like second billing and on the poster. And it's obviously kind of like a cash in on his success a little bit, just having him in there. But he plays a like very Shakespearean, absurd sort of villain who like slices pears with a switchblade and wears fur and stuff. And, um, you know, he was just like on set with like his big bodyguards, just like smoking out the trailer all the time. And so the movie just has this fascinating background, but it's also really, really insane to watch because it's like one of the most just brimming with homoeroticism, just like one of the most homoerotic movies I've ever seen. Mickey Rourke's character is just like it's it, it's made kind of pretty. It's not like explicit, but it's pretty explicit that he was assaulted and raped in prison. Um, and so the movie is all about him kind of like struggling, like with that trauma and like with his own sexuality. And there are just like all of these sort of insinuations and innuendos and sometimes not even innuendos, like literally like there's one point where like Mickey Rourke is telling his like other friend that like, he's like, Hey man, like, you're horrible to women. I think you're like a latent homosexual. And he's like clearly like projecting onto this other guy. Um, and there's just like, I don't know. It's very weird because it's this like gangster movie that was produced by actual gangsters and funded by actual gangsters. But it's this kind of like Nicholas Ray, almost like West Side Story meets Summer of Sam meets New Jack City kind of like crisis of sexuality movie. Like there's like literally a, a shooting up scene where it's like the needle is really sexualized and made into a phallus. And like you see like heroin squirting out of it. And it's like so clearly supposed to look like cum. Like it's so clearly a cum shot. And like Barry White is playing. There's also this whole thing where like there's like his like Mickey works like best friend. I'm sure, you like watches like, his facial expressions during that scene too, right? Yeah, like he's just Mickey work is trying to really like play it up and be macho, but his friend, his best friend, is like really like preening and primping and like wearing pink and like listening to uh like I'm too sexy in the car and and uh and Mickey work is like this isn't music this fucking like you know like tinny whatever little kid shit like this is real music and he pops in Barry White and they're like driving around Williamsburg shooting up in a car while there are, there are all these blurry shots of Hasidic dudes like walking around and it's just absolutely insane <laughs> um. I don't know. Yeah. And also it has like Ted Levine, most famous for playing Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs as like Mickey Rourke's brother, who is a Vietnam vet who has really severe PTSD. And he's just like collecting weapons the whole movie and like training kids in self-defense and just going on these crazy monologues. Then his other brother is played by a young Adrian Brody, who's this like wannabe like Picasso dirtbag philosopher artist um just it's it, peter dinklage shows up for literally like five seconds wearing a free mike tyson shirt it's just like and michael k williams also young michael k williams what? has one of tupac's henchmen he's just like in a limo with an uzi at one point it's I just like that. yeah it's oh just like a God. lot of faces a lot of details a lot of just really weird things yeah, it's just like a movie that has like a lot of presence and a lot of it's just very strange. It's just all the whole yeah. production, the and then the, the actual text of the movie itself like doesn't disappoint. You know, it's not just something where it's like fun to read about the behind the scenes and then dull to watch. It's like you feel that insanity like on set in the movie, really. So I oh, like wow. definitely recommend uh 
finding that and uh, also subscribing to Steve's Substack and reading that interview if if you're so inclined because yeah. there's a lot going on. Uh, cool. Uh, we'll put a link to that in like the yeah. episode description. If anybody yeah. wants to click that. Click one those thing links. MFs are going to do. It's click a link. Yeah, click that. <sighs> click that link. Yeah, I made a I made a uh, you know, one of the movies we're talking about, I made a click that link meme sort of about it. Uh, blow that, you know, blow on that bottle and click that link if your mind is empty. Mm -hmm. Click that damn link because we're finally doing it. We're finally, you know, normally we fill your mind up with ideas. This time we're going to empty it out. Yeah. Drain the um, swamp. <laughs> Drain gang, drain my life. <laughs> Pull up in a rover. Hot box of cinemas pulling up in a rover. Oh god. I bet that guy doesn't charge that much for custom videos. Oof. Dude, no. We could totally get him to like make us a yeah. podcast drop. And he would probably say something very strange about like the health benefits of weed. Or maybe he's very anti-weed. It could go either way with, with Martin Caballo. Yeah. But I would know. be curious to know, actually. Let's look into it, I think. Uh, but yeah, we talked about this earlier. Um, and like the we alluded to it, I believe, in the last podcast we did. But this all kind of goes back to when we had that episode that was like two ago, I think, with Mike Thorne about the Bye Bye Man. And we kind of talked about the mind yeah. virus and stuff like that. And, and we'd mentioned like kind of exploring that a little bit further um because you know after you watch the bye bye man you just you just start moving different you know you keep thinking it and you keep saying it you can't mm -hmm. ever say goodbye yeah they should have called him the built different man <laughs> the build back better man oh. <laughs> um it's it was just very interesting because we watched that and you know i don't know that was sort of like an idea that I had been kind of thinking about in the past sometimes, like even some stuff sort of my master's thesis was a lot, a lot about horror and sci-fi as genres. And, and I don't know if I ever used the phrase mind virus explicitly, but it was very much related to this idea of like, I don't know, sort of ideas and kick you out of the Academy. Yeah. It's too hot for the ivory tower. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's just, you know, kind of about ideas, sort of like movies about ideas where like an idea becomes really so potent that it sort of takes physical form almost and like infects you and mutates. And so obviously that idea was in the Bye Bye Man, but we kind of got infected ourselves a little bit and ended up like very fortuitously watching several movies in quick succession, um, several recent movies that all yeah. felt sort of like related to this idea and this concept. Mm -hmm. And that just sort of led to a, uh, further spread and the further uh infection and uh re just this whole network you know kind of yeah. developed of like various movies and, and media objects that yeah. this sort of touches on my brain just kept itching exactly like once you realize that the brain can itch you gotta keep scratching yeah there's no Remember lotion that time that drake said i'm in the matrix and i just took the blue pill <laughs> he's like i want to stay asleep yeah i stay sleeping yeah um but i don't know i guess well i guess this the sort of 
it was originally going to be like a Sundance episode, weirdly enough to recall. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, because like we talked about a couple of the movies that were going to be in Sundance that seemed kind of like interesting and maybe we could just like talk about those and we're both kind of like, yeah, that I mean, that seems cool, but is this like just is this just Sundance press or is there like an episode to it? Um, Yeah, but I mean, then everything kind of ended up kind of falling into place, but then I saw the empty man and I was like, damn, okay. There's some more yeah. stuff out there. Um, I remember when I was in high school though, and I watched Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid for the first time. And I was like, this is the movie they named a film festival after this is the one. I mean, the movie's fine. Yeah, no, you know, it's just, it's, it's cool. Flight. I mean, I liked Paul Newman a lot when I was in high school, you know, cool hand Luke. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's it, the Sundance Industrial Complex is very interesting to me. And when this was supposed to be a Sundance episode, I was going to kind of reflect on that a little bit um, because it's obviously, you know, something that was like started by Robert Redford to be this kind of like hotbed for independent cinema. Um, one of the movies he was inspired by is one of my favorite movies, uh, The Whole Shoot and Match by Eagle Pinnell, which is like the Texan killer of sheep. You know, it's this kind of like low budget, almost anthropological study of just these like guys in Texas, just old, old, you know, good old boys who just don't have a lot going on, drinking yeah. beer, driving around, working shitty jobs. Robert Redford saw that and a couple of other movies. And uh, I think like girlfriends by claudia wheel um and was sort of like you know i i want to have a place to incubate these kind of movies and now it's obviously turned into this huge huge industry where movies sell for millions and millions of dollars and it's very much about parties and stuff and i thought it was you know it's it's we've talked a lot about virtual screenings and virtual cinemas at this point now because obviously that's just like so much of the landscape right now um, and I felt like Sundance, um, this year, you know, it was really interesting because this one movie in particular, um, that we're going to be talking about some, uh, we're all going to the world's fair, um, which premiered at Sundance this year is really interesting to me, both like formally and thematically, but also because it's a movie that I think like really, took off with a with with people because of that like virtual screening format and because of that greater accessibility um mm-hmm. and it's a movie about people who are very much kind of online and and very much informed by being online and because of this whole change in format i think it was actually able to like reach people who more greatly relate to the characters in the movie and the people in the movie than mm-hmm. like the average like sundance critic or sundance industry person who is like going to see hot new movies uh, yeah. at the festival exactly it was made they were it was like produced outside of like the new kind of restrictions that have been in place on production over the last year with like mm-hmm. social distancing and things like that or i just saw this thing the other day where apparently guy Ritchie is directing a movie that has jason statham in it right now and he's directing him over facetime with what like the fuck i assume like like a united states shoot location or something like that and he's directing these performances over facetime that's so crazy yeah 
apparently he has a very active YouTube channel as well. Is mm-hmm. where I found this. It's like the next level of Francis Ford Coppola's electronic cinema where he was trying to figure out like how can I direct the actors from a distance from a like van, like a live TV broadcast setup, you know, Mm -hmm. and he was just sort of trying to figure out like that and like how to be physically distant from the actors. And it's sort of interesting that like that at that time was like. He was very unsuccessful at trying to make that a thing and it bankrupted him. Uh, but now it's like something that's kind of been forced into necessity. This like distancing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, now everybody gets a cut, you know? Yeah. Coppola did it first. Yeah. Anyway, uh, this movie was made outside of like those newer production, um, you know, standards. But also it's, it's a movie that I feel like resonated with a lot of people because it honestly like kind it was might have been made in a way that qualifies as like COVID safe, just cause it's, mm-hmm. I'm in a movie with maybe two, three in-person characters. Most of it happens on laptop screen. capture. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's been a little bit since I've seen the movie, but I don't feel like there's really a scene where anybody is like in the same room together. Mm-hmm. Like you hear like a parent's voice, like in the distance, but that's about it. I think. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it uses that to like an incredibly like lonely and isolated effect. Mm-hmm. And it tells the story about like a lonely high schooler who uses like the Internet and a computer to socialize instead of, you know, whatever real life is around her. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's also like scored by Alex G, which just feels yeah, like yeah. a very on the nose choice for the lonely high schooler movie. No, I mean, it's 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 a great kind of choice because it feels like something that like this sort of person, this sort of isolated online kind of emo kid would listen to. Um, and it, it's uh, directed by uh, Jane Schoenbrunn, who's like co-creator and programmer of um, the Ice Slicer Film Festival and program, which is like both uh, has been like in an in-person sort of physical thing, but has also like done a lot of online programming and stuff. Uh, so they're a filmmaker who I think is like very much like connected to those kind of spaces and thinking about that. And this movie just like, I don't know, it just really got the wheels turning in terms of like, it's so, I mean, it's so like, you know, you're saying so emotionally kind of palpable and resonant, but just formally, it sort of takes the kind of like screen life sort of conceit that we know and love and talk about so much on this show to another level, because I've mm-hmm. never really seen something like this that like integrates the sort of like algorithm or like auto play shuffle like this movie where there's moments where you're, you know, you see a like buffering and like a video is about to start playing and you don't know what it is at all. And there's just this kind of like tense moment of, of horror almost, even though it's not, it's, you know, it's, it is a horror movie, I guess, but it's more like a, a sort of like folkloric, like somebody telling you a spooky story almost yeah. kind of, which is very much indicative of like what it's basically about, which we should say at this point, which is like creepypasta. Um, yeah. Basically. Yeah, like viral video trends, creepypasta, all that. Um, I think what distinguishes it from a lot of screen life movies, though, um, is that those movies usually uh, are like, like every beat in the story, every event is always motivated by like a notification. Mm-hmm. So it's always it's it's very like exciting, kind of, and it almost feels like it's like waking you up 
like the audience a little bit after you're just like just watching somebody use their phone or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I feel like most of them are like just a story of notifications, which I get for like a horror context where screen life kind of has been like laid out more broadly and explored. Like that makes sense. Um, yeah. But I feel like there aren't a whole lot of movies about like being really bored on the internet or bored on the computer. And like, yeah, I mean, what the like a lonely experience of using it is instead of just constant stimulation. It's very hard, I think, to find a way to like recreate the feeling of aimlessly surfing and refreshing outside of a like art context. And obviously this is a sort of like, you know, it's in the like Sundance now program, which is the more like experimental digital, like futuristic kind of looking cinema of Sundance. Um, And it's a very, very hyper digital movie. Mm hmm. So it is like, you know, it's more of an art film, I guess, more of an experimental film. But, you know, in a Hollywood context with something like Unfriended or whatever, it, it is sort of like constrained and like has to be a sort of hyperactive, hypertext Internet. Whereas a yeah. lot of the Internet is is you're just sort of like on the same site for a long time, just like going down these tunnels. And that is really what this movie captures is that like feeling of like burrowing yourself in a like spiral of recommendations Mm -hmm. and, and whatever. And um, yeah, I mean, it makes me sad a little bit that I guess we won't really get like an Akira Stami movie about smartphones. Um, But also I don't know that he was the person to make that mm -hmm. because I don't know that he would really understand it. He seems very much like I don't have a phone. I live life without a phone. I live in the world kind of guy. Yeah, definitely. Like of that generation of artists. But yeah, but it does have that. That's a really interesting kind of point because there is that sort of just like moments of this movie where it's just sort of like things unfolding and just the sort of like, it's just the sort of like absent camera that has been kind of forgotten and left and like, you know, the webcam Mm -hmm. just kind of running. But a certain amount of this is also like, the kind of unreliability of the internet um, because, you know, you have this, this high schooler who's making these videos based around this, like this challenge called like the world's fair challenge um, where you're supposed to like watch this video and do these things. And then like your body will start changing or something like that. And well, you see uh, these kind of like transformation challenges people do on the internet where they're like, I'm making this now and I'm going to be updating this. Yeah, it's many days and you'll get to watch it. The movie is like set kind of within YouTube, basically. But it's something I think that's even louder with TikTok now, just like challenge culture like that Um, and just really extreme kind of challenges, too. So, you, you, you know, as the challenge goes on, you don't really know if like what's happening is sort of are these sort of like more like fictional, like horror stories, basically. And the, the kids, you know, kind of strikes up this relationship with this older internet user who's concerned um, and seems to like kind of just, you know, make up things and think that it's a game at first before he starts getting like genuinely concerned. But with the teenager, you don't know if it's like, yeah, you don't know if it's like, is this a real sort of crisis? Is this mm-hmm. something supernatural or is this just play? Like, you know, is this just kind of Internet like something yeah. like an ex- a manifestation of someone's kind of depression through this like odd creative outlet? Yeah. Um, in In game studies, there's like this concept that I mean, I think. 
I don't know, it's like one of the earliest concepts that I mean, has since kind of been linked to like colonialism and stuff. But the concept is is like the magic circle within a game, which is basically mm-hmm. just like the imaginary line where like the rules stop applying for the game and where like real the real life exists and stuff. Mm-hmm. And this movie seems like it's very much, you know, about like performance and acting and kind definitely of playing like a game um and where that starts and stops i don't know yeah it doesn't seem yeah. very like there's a lot of like panicky types of like movies and media about relationships formed over the internet um and this doesn't really feel like it's like a moral panic or anything but it's just like mm-hmm. a very I don't know, just letting like an online relationship play out and kind of see how it forms. Yeah, I mean, I think it just sort of says like, you know, this is the landscape that we exist in and that a lot of relationships play out on in this, you know, in this space. And I think it's one of the few movies that captures not just this feeling of like your own isolation on the internet, but the feeling of isolation you feel when you've connected with someone over the internet and they're going through some kind of crisis and you don't know how to help and you don't know how to communicate or be there for them because you really like, you know them, but you don't know everything about them. You don't know a lot of their IRL kind of circumstances. And it's so relatable to like when I back, you know, when I was a teen and I was on Tumblr and I like a lot of times I met people who were confused about, you know, their identity or in some kind of crisis. And like eventually I left those sites or whatever and lost touch with people and don't know what happened to them or if, you know, they were ever OK yeah. or if they ever felt better about themselves or whatever. Or, you know, similarly, like, you know, I just, you know, people that I've known through Twitter who've had like real mental health crises and breakdowns like online. And you see that and you're like, how do I reach out? What do I do? You know, just that kind of feeling, but also the kind of like, so that's some of these relationships, you know, obviously this is a relationship between an older and younger person and there's maybe something sort of uncomfortable or sort of odd about it. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it's also kind of like, you just know these are two kind of lonely desperate people and there's more of i think almost like a poignancy and sort of a like it's very sad but it's like it's not it's not totally sort of like condemning it's just sort of saying like this is these are the relationships that happen online where sometimes maybe the boundaries are a little bit if you're or like it would be you know these people wouldn't be friends maybe in the in the real world whatever um but they've made this connection they know each other they're having an impact on each other and like let's examine that because it's very real like there's so you know it's very easy to end up in these sometimes kind of odd intergenerational relationships online i think um yeah um one thing that i think is like kind of interesting i feel like whenever people think of like the internet and just like socializing on the internet i mean especially in like maybe the 90s the way that was kind of sold and the way the internet was sold is mm-hmm. kind of this utopian way where you'll you can meet anybody on the internet yeah um but usually i mean the way it plays out is you just like meet people who like socialize over the computer 
it's very it's a self-selecting group of people basically in the same way yeah. that, like, the website reddit is not a neutral platform but it's based on the way it works and what's popular there it selects a certain type of audience predominantly and and that that gives it a certain like political context and mm-hmm. all these things um but i mean yeah i feel like the movie kind of it's not just about people like meeting over the internet but it also really heavily centers like the environments that they're like that they're doing this from and it does yeah. make it in ways kind of like a real dialogue scene where you have these like shots and reverse shots that take place not just on like like a texting interface or something like that but also in the real environments yeah i mean imagine if uh the movie we talked about in the last episode demon lover if the whole movie was just the kid at the computer <laughs> um you're just watching him type his yeah things. his type out his fantasies but you know one thing it kind of like really brought to mind for me which i guess was sort of a creepy pasta like really like the one kind of creepy pasta thing that like really latched into my head and became sort of an obsession for me. Um, but it was this dude named, uh, this user named human being one fifty one on YouTube also at one point known as insomniac. And it's, it had kind of been this pet obsession of mine for a while because I remember in high school, um, a friend showed me this video and then sort of told me the story about the account, which mostly sort of originated from this like cracked.com article that wasn't really like that verified, which makes mm-hmm. sense because it's fucking cracked.com and like anyone can contribute. Um, but basically it was this like now the guy's original YouTube channel had been deleted, but the video had been re-uploaded and allegedly it was the last video he ever uploaded. And this guy, human being 151, apparently every day he would upload all these videos that would say like, you know, they were like spam, scam kind of things trying to get your attention. It was like new P P Diddy song, like exclusive Puff Daddy, new drop, single just Mm -hmm. released, just leaked. And then you click on the video and of course there's like no music and it's just text and it says like P Diddy, please check your MySpace inbox. I have an urgent message for you like Brother Diddy, please accept my message. And then one day, like all these videos vanished and he uploaded this 10 minute video walking around an apartment filled with thousands of spiral notebooks. And there's a sign that says like, brother Diddy, I've done this all for you. And he flips through some of the notebooks and it just says like, brother Diddy, please accept over and over and over again. And it had been re-uploaded with like creepy music. So it was even weirder. And you never see the guy in the video. You just see his house swarmed with these spiral notebooks. I thought the spiral notebooks would have had like, like, uh, like lyrics in them, like some, he would have written down some, some bars. He was trying to get a, uh, he was trying to get a mixtape to him. That's the thing they do. Actually, the thing is, is the, the story was totally like fake. It had gotten totally twisted. Um, and I found, I was like, after I watched world's fair, I was thinking about human being 151. It had been a few years since I'd gone, done a dive. I even like made an art project in college for a class about this dude. I made a like website dedicated to him sort of in what I imagined he would have done for P Diddy, like just like grammatical errors, weird fonts, like video clips, j- just all kinds of strange stuff uh, on like angel fire or something it's since been mm-hmm. deleted. Um, but I found this video essay where somebody really did a deep dive and they like 
traced like I don't know, like Kodak stuff from videos and found like the Google Plus account, like linked to his old YouTube and stuff. Turns out this was some guy in like Dubai or something who just like really he like really liked like Drake and shit. And he wanted to be a singer and he was just like spamming the Internet, uploading all kinds of shit. And he had like other accounts where he would like upload little snippets of music or sometimes like just 20 second videos of him like picking his nose, just like weird, just. And he would he eventually made Instagram accounts and stuff. And it turns out the video actually had like text on it originally at the beginning that said, like, these are all my songs. Like, these are all the hours of songs, tens of thousands of songs I've written, original songs. So apparently the notebooks supposedly actually do contain this dude's original lyrics. And it was just taken and turned into this like horror thing. But it's also mm. like still a fucking insane amount of notebooks for any human to have. There's nothing yeah. else in this house besides a guitar and just hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of college ruled spiral notebooks. It just kind of like, I, you know, I, I'm still holding on to that original story because it's kind of more interesting and terrifying. Yeah. But it just speaks to this sort of like, I don't know, the sort of question of this movie of like, is this real? Is this fiction? Is this a story that someone's telling like, or is this like someone's just like crisis unfolding and you don't know what to do uh, because you're on the other end of it, just like a spectator in a horror movie. Um, it's like how I felt when I found out that that, that Owen Wilson skateboarding video is fake. Oh my God. I thought that was real. The first time I watched that, I was like, Owen Wilson's the greatest. <laughs> But I guess the sort of, I don't know, World's Fair like touches, gets into that kind of mind virus because the World's Fair challenge is supposed to be this like mind virus. You know, it's this meme. It's this thing that gets into your brain. You literally watch this video. It's supposed to change your chemistry. It's like strobing colors. Yeah, it's it's like the sleeper cell activation. Yeah. And so it's like candidate moment. It's it's literally this kind of virus. And so um I don't know, you know, I watched, we watched this and then about a week or two later from nowhere, seemingly actually from somewhere, from several sources, people had told me that I should watch it. Um, but this, I, you know, I heard of this movie that I had literally never heard of a, a wide studio release from 2020. Yeah. The empty man directed by David Pryor. Um, I saw, uh, uh, someone in post screenshots saw a few people on Letterboxd give it some good ratings. And I was like, wait, what the fuck is this movie? I'd like the screenshot was crazy, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but it was some Kiyoshi Kurosawa vibes. The inventor of the mind virus, you know, maybe with movies mm-hmm. like Cure and Pulse, the OG mind virus smoking on that uh, shit. Uh, anyways, um but I was just like, this looks crazy. And I so I looked it up and it was a, you know, 20th Century Fox movie that was filmed in 2017, then delayed because of the Disney acquisition of Fox, then delayed again because of COVID, dumped in theaters, so dumped that it contains the old 20th Century Fox title card. That's how little oversight this movie got. That's how little they oh, cared about it. Pre-Disney. Yeah, the pre-Disney title card. Well, they just they just had a button that said release. Yeah. And they never changed what was going to release. And I was like, okay, this movie looks crazy. It's 140 minutes long. Um, I saw someone say that it had a 20 minute long prologue in the Himalayas. 
And then I looked into David Pryor. It's his feature film debut. And he has uh, he has a background in DVD menu design and also is sort of a protege of David Fincher's. He did behind the scenes docs for like most of David Fincher's movies over the last decade or so. So I was like, okay, it's all coming together, baby. This is just like yeah. perfect film material. This is just like a once in a lifetime, once in a generation kind of movie. I put that fucker on Himalayan prologue, 22 minutes in empty man title card drops and the best part is how it's like stylized. There's like no P in the empty man title card. And then it yeah. cuts 25 years from the Himalayas in the nineties to small town, Missouri in 2018. And I was like, okay, this is fucking yeah. masterpiece. And then it was just literally insane because it was just like literally all this stuff about mind viruses that we've been sort of talking about, thinking about a little bit with world's fair, but also stuff I talked about with like, Right, reading my thesis, just ideas I was interested in. And it felt like this whole sort of thing just like manifesting from my brain, this movie about just like nothingness and the abyss and like energies and like collective unconscious and all this just like crazy shit, but also sort of about horror and about like, I don't know, creating characters, creating fiction, fiction versus reality, all of this stuff. And it just, I don't know. And, and, uh, it's, you know, a lot of people have seen it over the past month or so. Um, and it's yeah. kind of become a cult, I think. This is the letterbox to Twitter viewership complex, the pipeline. Um, but I don't know. It's just an astonishing movie to me. Um, <laughs> because it's just like, I mean, okay, just one level on like a craft level, like it has those Fincher vibes, you know, it's mm -hmm. small town straight out of Gone Girl, sort of detective movie like Zodiac and Dragon Tattoo. So it has this like realist sort of straight faced kind of vibe that leads you to think that it might be kind of prestige sort of elevated horror. But mm -hmm. then on the other half of it, it's also like gleefully like gory and trashy in this kind of like J-horror way, but also in a sort of like cosmological Stephen King horror paperback kind of way. Um, just like, I don't know, they just like it starts as this kind of mundane small town detective movie about missing teens and becomes this just like entire universe of thought in which reality is just collapsing in on itself. And so it's really just to me like a movie that's bound between these two poles of like a sort of realist style and this kind of humanism almost. And then its performances too. I mean, it has actors from like, has an actor from uh, Joe Swanberg's Netflix show Easy. And it also has one of the leads from Paul Harrell's movie Light from Light. And both of those are very like kind of Bazanian sort of like kind of human character studies. So just having those actors in this horror movie made me think of it as like, okay, so this is setting itself up as being like a drama, being something about people's relationships, something fundamentally real. And then it just whiplashes to the other side of just like the entire world is false. Everything is fake. Everything is constructed. Everything is a simulation basically. Uh, and I was just like, I don't know, kind of aghast, agog. Whew. When I tried to watch it, I was like, this is too freaky, too late at night. I need to I need to to pause this. Yeah, it, you know, it's based off a graphic novel, which is apparently like super gory. And it does have its kind of moments of real on the nose, like 
gore and jumps yeah. kind of scare horror and stuff which work perfectly but it is mostly just like that existential dread um yeah that's the thing it was too much but then the the secret was just hit and play again damn just about going like through 30 it. minutes later yep and then i you know i went through it i went to jacques derrida high school one other thing that's interesting is that you noted like some of the fincher like digital vibes and I don't know. I feel like it uses that kind of like openness and area. I mean, in a couple of different ways, there's like, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's always talked about as being very cold and chilling and that's used to nice effect when they're in the Himalayas. Um, but even later, it just makes every scene feel like a vacuum. There's like no air in the frame. Yeah, no, I mean, it's fascinating because I've seen it twice now. And I mean, I feel like, we, we, you know, we'll kind of have to inevitably sort of spoil some things about this movie, but um, it does sort of like, you know, reveal itself to be just like totally kind of false. Like the whole world is just an illusion, basically, mm-hmm. and kind of in your head at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. And you don't know that when you're driving forward, when you're going through it the first time, you think it's all just this kind of like very step-by-step detective story. So watching it, knowing that everything is just kind of fake, it like first that feeling of vacuum, that kind of feeling of airiness reads as like, this is just like, you know, cold digital, just like capturing reality or something like, but then it reveals itself as like total abstraction, like total, just like this is a this is kind of a simulation like this is just a mechanical engine of reality that has just been created for this one person so basically like that's kind of like i think the sort of thing about this movie is like it's kind of like the very sort of idea of reality or existence is kind of like this mind virus like yeah um you know i hate to talk more about jacques derrida than just my joke God, I mean, yeah, but it, it, that is like it's it's one of those things like so that's so on the nose, but it lets you know exactly what it's about. It's, like, yeah, it's so specific, just like, uh, um, you know, uh, simulation and uh, simulacrum in The Matrix and Jacques Derrida again in Black Hat, like the appearance of those two. It's just the same kind of thing, like just literally making it so, so plain. Yeah. Well, do you think, do you know anything about the production of this movie or Black Hat that could maybe like mirror how the Wachowskis like approached like key actors in the movie and made them read Simulation and Simulacrum? Or I guess it's that title is actually Simulacrum well, and Simulation. But yeah, yeah, made them right. Recite back like key points. You know, um, I don't actually know. There's been like one interview I've seen with David Pryor about the production of this movie, I think on like film school rejects that just sort of gets into like the messiness of it all and like contract stuff. I don't think it really gets quite into that kind of like artistic production stuff, but I do know. Yeah, like informing acting and things. Somebody mentioned that he's like working on a like explicitly like weird fiction inspired screenplay and so like with the Jacques Derrida reference just with this that sort of kind of like Lovecraftian tenor to this movie a little bit it feels like he's a very like literary kind of guy so like I would not be surprised um and I also you know the thing about like what I said about the casting is just like total 
speculation at my part, but it does sort of really stand out to me that he's sort of drawn these actors who at least the performances of theirs that stand out to me or that I associate them with are just very much like kind of existential like dramas and things and character relationship studies. And similarly to that, um, the soundtrack, the score is um, collaboration between this uh, Swedish musician Lundström who also did the soundtrack to First Reformed. Um, and he's working with Christopher Young, who's like an, I guess, legendary horror composer, did stuff to like, score to like Hell, Hellraiser and stuff like that. So I think that's kind of a good, like, almost kind of sandwich of vibes. You know, you have like just really gory, like Clive Barker kind of body shit that's really freaky. And then you have like, uh, you know, a sort of existential acclaimed drama about how do we go from here? You know, what do we do as humanity, you know, as humans, like whatever. And I think it's interesting because I was like looking into Lundstrom's music, uh, which falls pretty like you go on YouTube and all the recommendations are for like dark ambient, like hour long playlists and stuff, uh, which is a oh, really yeah. sort of like, I don't know, it feels very much, a, a f kind of affiliated or connected to the sort of horror creepypasta community of like the world's fair. And it's, there's, I don't know. I feel like there's this whole sort of marketplace for this kind of like stuff. That's like both like background music and like, just like these sort of like things that are meant to be streamed in this just like commodified background way, but that are also sort of like spooky and creepy, like um, just, you know, the sort of, resurgence of john carpenter's musical career sort of feels very much like it's sort of just like a horror movie soundtrack that you're supposed to do your homework to like lo-fi hip-hop beats yeah soundtrack to my life yeah and so lundstrom feels kind of like that you know dark ambient and also there's also like the dark academia kind of tumblr subculture <laughs> which is like the dark <laughs> twin of cottage core um mm -hmm. it's like teens who are obsessed with like I mean, on like one hand, kind of like Harry Potter aesthetics, I guess a little bit, but sort of like dead poet society and like stuff about like boarding schools. But it's also very like, you know, sweaters and fall and like dark eyeliner and Doc Martens and like Lolita and all of this just like just like. I don't know, like literary sort of bro, bro English major aesthetics, but like infused with this kind of like the latent horror, I guess, of just like being a doomer, you know, I guess is mm -hmm. what that is. Um, it's a bit of like a Harry Potter yeah. tinge to it for me. Yeah, definitely. But there's also that kind of takes me back to The Empty Man because the movie is sort of uh, when it starts out it's just sort of like these kind of crazy teens like what are they into like the internet's ruining them you know because you have this girl who goes missing who is you know the main character is played by james badgedale he's this ex-cop he's obviously got trauma he's a dead wife guy and he has this friend played by Marin ireland whose daughter goes missing and she's sort of mixed up in some kind of new age beliefs of some sort and James Badgedale starts hunting and investigating and he finds soon that like all of her friends are missing. And that leads him to eventually finding that all of her friends have like hung themselves underneath a bridge. She's missing still. She's gone. But all the other teens are dead. And eventually he finds that like she's gotten roped in this roped up into this organization called like the Pontifex Institute. 
um, which very uh very parallax view yeah you know that's one thing about this movie where i think as it's sort of going for the first like hour and a half maybe it feels very much like a 60s 70s like fear of the collective embrace individualism embrace the self kind of movie where it's like basically like the taking this attitude towards zoomers of like oh these like crazy hippies like I was just talking about first reformed, but it almost feels like Schrader's hardcore a little bit. Like he's not her dad and she's not involved in porn, but it is this kind of like, what is your daughter up to? Like she's mixed up with these people who have crazy beliefs about like nothingness and the abyss and want to give themselves to a world of violence and bloodshed and think that nothing is real. But then it totally undoes that because it reveals that, this character you've been following the whole time is a tulpa is a is a manifestation of the collective consciousness and thought of this like cult of this pontifex institute they've created him as this like vessel for the empty man for this like ancient spiritual force so he's going on all of these when i rewatched it you know the first time i thought he was finding things himself Rewatching, it's so clear that he's being led and that things are being given to him and information is being doled out for him. And you hit this point in the movie where all of reality collapses in on itself and um, you realize that like you realize you know at first it's been like the self the individual like but then you realize there's no sense of self. This guy is a total construct, you know, time plus thought plus concentration equals flesh. And <laughs> I'll wrap this tangent up soon, but what really kind of drove some things together for me is there's this crazy part where when he first goes to the Pontifex Institute, he's like filling out this paperwork and it's this like true false kind of questionnaire of all these weird statements. And a lot of it's like, this is when the kind of weird dogma of the movie really starts to get introduced and all this cosmological stuff that a lot of people say are like plot holes or don't add up. But to me, the gaps in it make it more fascinating and more evocative and effective for me. But there's a lot of statements like does the brain or like the brain itches or like nothing is real or like, you know, give yourself to the abyss or I don't I don't even remember just like kind of crazy philosophical pseudoscientific shit like that. And then he flips through a page where it's all this stuff about gender and like there's statements like women can have penises like menstruation doesn't determine gender. There are infinite genders. And I don't know, I was just sort of thinking about that and carrying that through the movie with me. And then when it gets to the end and you realize that this guy who is such a trope of just like these kind of movies, just this like bland ex-cop yeah. who's got a dead wife and son. He feels really guilty about it. He feels bad. Yeah. And he's an alcoholic. You realize all of that is fake. All of that has been given to him, projected onto him. He is no one. He is like this self has been constructed because of the like wishes of the group because of society. So I don't really think it's actually like anti-collective. It's more just like the self is false. Like that's what the movie yeah. comes to say, I think. Yeah. Individuation. Yeah. That's or... the mind virus. That's an idea that infects people. Mm hmm. <laughs> Yeah, well, I feel like that's it's uh, compared to like I mentioned Parallax View earlier without mm -hmm. having like any kind of comparison in mind. But when you look at it related to like that movie, Warren Beatty in that one is such like a like he's blank, but he's still like a pretty like warm, genuine example of like the American individual mm -hmm. 
person, you know, stumbling, fumbling, but doing what's right. Yeah. And I think that James Badgedale is totally like, he's just supposed to be like, you start the movie and you're just like, Oh, this is guy such a trope. Like, and then you get through it and you realize that's the point. And it's almost like bloodshot or something where it's like all the things you think are cliches are like, because it's a cliche and like, you realize some of this clunkiness is because it's literally a script that's been written by this group of people, some of whom are teenagers who are just trying to create this emotionally powerful story. So they're like, we had to give you more trauma. We had to give you more guilt. And rewatching it, it kind of hit me. I'm like, this is about like writing horror or about writing fiction, about creating characters. Because so much of like the narrative of contemporary horror and like elevated horror is like, oh, it's really explicitly about trauma in this way that's almost become kind of commodified of like, look, like, look at the Halloween remake. Like it's foregrounding Laurie Strode's like PTSD. It's really explicitly about that when really that's like what horror movies have always kind of been about on a subtextual level. And so, but this is saying like, isn't it kind of fucked up and insane when you think about it, that we create and invent these people and realities just to inflict horrible fucked up things on them, whether it be like violence, literal physical violence, or just like terrible backstories, things that have happened to them in the past. And that's really what this movie felt like to me. It's just like this kind of just like desperate, like meta cry at like the futility of, of inventing fiction and inventing characters. Yeah. The way you're describing it is making me realize that this is basically just like how I felt about that game Near Automata when I played it in mm, like wow. 2017. It's very like textually about a lot of the same themes. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's like it's about that kind of like then sort of like genre as a kind of laboratory or like simulation um, as a sort of experiment to sort of reach a desired set of results which in this the case of the pontifex institute is like someone who has enough like emotional charge to carry the weight of this supernatural force um and if you carry that out to like a fictional sort of metaphor it's like a protagonist who has had enough pain in their life to like for the audience to feel sympathetic for them um and I don't know. It, it, so it's uh, it had me thinking a lot about genre and a lot about horror on a much broader level. And it's sort of what led this network of, of viruses to spread out to other movies. But I don't know. It got me like it really it, it got me very thinking about like The Shining, um, which I think is something that sort of carries across like multiple uh, kind of, I don't know, there are some multiple examples that I, that I think kind of show this, but um, I also, well, one of the, okay, one of the reasons I rewatched The Shining is because of a movie that we haven't talked about yet, but one of the other movies that played at Sundance that we were going to talk about um, is this new, newish documentary, A Glitch in the Matrix mm-hmm. by Rodney Asher, which is all about just like simulation theory and people who believe in it. Yeah, and that name may sound familiar to people who have seen Room 237. Yeah, which is essentially his like video essay about shining fanatics or basically just like letterboxed posters. Uh, Yeah, just like different like conspiracy theories. They feel the movie's linked to and why they feel that. People who have just really projected onto it and read very deeply into it, which is like, I don't know, watching it. Some of it was like, yeah, these people have taken it far. But uh, on the other hand, I'm like, I'm this way with certain movies. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. it's not I don't know it. His his work 
is very inconsistent for me because sometimes he just seems like he's sort of fascinated by people who don't seem that like out of the ordinary to me and who seem just sort of like people who exist online or yeah. whatever. And in this, this documentary about this living in the simulation theory, a yeah. lot of the interviewees are just like, just like dudes that like just nerds out of their parents' house and stuff like that. Yeah. And um, they have like VTuber avatars. Most of you know, them. there's an expert or two, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, it's about, but I think it's kind of interesting though, in the way that it, oh, I definitely. found this more engaging than room 237. Cause I think this is in part about like why people like gravitate toward this theory of like, we're all living in a computer program. Well, so room 237 feels like something that like Vimeo would put on their homepage. You know, it's just kind of like an extended clip show. Um, and it's, and it wasn't without interest to me, but I think it mostly just kind of like is valuable as a sort of bringing up the shining because it's replaying, you know, the movie and these scenes over and presenting these different analyses of it. Um, and it got me thinking about, um, a little bit, just the, the conception of genre, just the conundrum of genre. And I was thinking about, I was thinking about something that like Peter Wallen wrote in, um, a sort of like investigation of the kind of sight and sound list over the years and how that's changed over the years and what that says about changes in the canon. And he was talking about why Citizen Kane has endured. And he said part of that is because it has this sort of like thematic malleability where it can be like read multiple ways. And so there are people who are like, oh, this is a you know landmark of technical formal innovation. Then there are people like Borges who are like, oh, this is like a surreal labyrinth. And there are people like Bazan who's like, oh, this is some this is like the next level in realism because of deep focus. So it has different ways to approach it. So the room 37 obviously approaches the shining as this kind of thing that can be like replayed basically over and over again in a bunch of variant ways. And I think that's kind of essentially what the shining is where it's like genres, this like haunted house simulator. And that movie really like makes the, the, the sort of subtext explicit where it's like, Oh, this is a movie that's about like this breakdown of this family and like abuse and addiction and how all of those things repeat. And it sort of uses the repetition of genre cycles as a metaphor for like the repetition of like cycles of family abuse, which is why it's so fitting that there was that, you know, a sequel, Dr. Sleep to me in a lot of ways, because, you know, it's, it follows Danny years later trying to escape the cycles that his father was trapped in. And, um, so it just speaks to that sort of cyclical like nature of genre to me, which is just feels like simulation because the sim thing about simulation is that they're done over and over again. There's not just one simulation ever. I mean, it's been like years since I've seen Room 237. I think I like watched it in high school pretty soon after I watched The Shining and I was I guess people like this Stanley Kubrick guy. I'll see what all this crap's about. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's there's I don't know. That's like very like cinephile like yeah just hey it's a movie about a movie and just kind of yeah and just kind of playing into the sort of mythos of genius or whatever a little bit while also sort of having a laugh at it at the same time because being yeah. like oh look how seriously people take this shit yeah um, but how much of autourism can at times be like projection right right but it's also i think one of my actually what i've realized after seeing all of his movies one of my issues with rodney asher is that he always has a personal interest 
at stake, but he doesn't really disclose it that much. The shine in the room 237, he talks a little bit about his own obsession with the shining and rewatching the shining a lot. And that's why he's interested in this. His documentary about sleep paralysis, the nightmare I thought was really shitty as someone who has suffered from sleep paralysis. Um, but he, at one point, like in an interview just mentions that he has sleep paralysis and then doesn't talk about it the rest of the movie. And I feel like it's kind of the same thing probably with glitch in the matrix where he probably got obsessed with this subject personally. It probably the mind virus probably infected him. He went down all these rabbit holes, but doesn't really unpack his own obsession. He projects it onto other people. Um, I actually think one of his more interesting films is like a short film that he made one of his first films, which is called the S from hell, which is about all these people who were like scared of the screen gyms logo, uh, at the end of TV shows in like the sixties and seventies. Apparently this was like a kind of great cultural, big phenomenon. Like, you know, it was a sort of note noted thing that like people were scared by this S and like the sound effects, the synthesizer that played with it. And I assume that Rodney Asher as a kid was probably scared by it. And that's why he made that movie. Um, but I guess it speaks to like, I don't know, mind viruses are memes and memes are kind of like folk culture in a way, because like, I guess the way that I've always sort of understood the difference between like folk culture and pop culture is that pop culture is something that has like an identifiable source of origin Folk culture is something that sort of belongs mutually to a collective group of people that seems to originate from kind of nowhere uh, or doesn't have a clear point of origin. And that's a lot of like the condition of the Internet. So I think it's sort of like, I don't know, all of these things like people being scared of this one image on a TV show, people having all these crazy theories about The Shining, all these people who suffer from sleep paralysis, all these people who believe in simulation theory, it's just kind of like exploring these like folk ideas, which are essentially like mind viruses, just like obsessions that people develop that totally inform everything about how they live and interact with the world. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely something in like a glitch in the matrix where you that them for the like beginning part of the movie. I mean, I like didn't enjoy watching this movie, at least for a good bit of it, just mm -hmm. because like so much of the beginning of the movie is just like explaining this theory that people have been just like talking about and rediscovering yeah. like for the last like several years. And then, I mean, it goes in the movie. It does document the way that it kind of comes in cultural waves over the years. Um, but I mean. I don't know. I just like I get frustrated with that theory in the same way that I get frustrated yeah. with like having to sit through an over explanation of it at the beginning. But I get this movie's not it's made for people who probably have never heard of it before or something. Yeah. I mean, the movie does kind of, I think, sort of mention about how it like sort of crops up every couple of like every year or so as this like, oh, look at this thing. Like, look at this new way of people trying to understand the world. Like, isn't this crazy? Um, but it does sort of feel very 101 at points. And it also like touches on a lot of like hot button kind of buzzwordy issues but not always doing it directly like it just ends up being very much kind of about like i don't know men's right kind of gamergate sort of incel that whole spectrum of shit but it doesn't ever really like use any of those words directly except for like talking about like school yeah. shootings and like murder you know like this case of this guy who was really obsessed with the matrix and then like killed his parents Mm -hmm. um, that was a really affecting sequence though yeah I mean I as time goes on I don't know I'm, I'm like maybe there's 
some ethics there, but this sort of, it is literally like a simulation of his like crime as he's, this guy's like detailing his thought process and what happened and like, yeah, but it's like a it's court deposition of, that's recorded. Yeah. It's this like rendering of his home, his childhood home as he goes downstairs and shoots his parents. Um, so I don't know. It really just aligns you with that viewpoint in a way that's really jarring and mm -hmm. uncomfortable, but creating a simulation out of it. Yeah. And earlier I mentioned that like it does for at least the beginning of it, just talk to people who are just kind of like, just like regular old Reddit users or whatever, who come to really be obsessed with this theory. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's kind of, mm -hmm. I think by the end it starts to like, get past the initial kind of like you know i guess like exciting pitch of this whole thing but gets to the other end of like well if people actually yeah. start believing this like how does it impact like how they live and what they do to other people um and i don't think it's like super i mean there's definitely like an ethics to like mm -hmm. having things like like you know somebody confessing to like this murder and all this stuff because of it um but I don't think it leans like into complete like exploitation. Yeah, no. I, but I mean, the movie basically does become about that like solipsism of like people who just literally begin to believe that the entire world was created for them and that everyone else is an NPC, which is sort of like what happens in The Empty Man, where at a certain point you realize like, oh, shit, like the entire the entire world that we see is like on screen. This guy's flashbacks and memories are like this thing in his the simulation in his head that's being created for him this kind of game level for him mm -hmm. to play out over and over again which is kind of like i don't know not to be too on the nose but it's like tr like traumatic memories that you replay are kind of a simulation in that same way um yeah. so you realize just like i don't know these people have basically like believed in this thing so much that they willed it into reality you know yeah. time plus thought plus concentration uh our good friend there um and basically sort of began to feel like they were kind of the empty man and like everything was just sort of created for them yeah and i mean people in general do spend a lot of time just like envisioning fake scenarios um just running simulations mm -hmm. in their head of like oh well what if i go to this person's place later and like they don't bring up this thing they did or something like that you know yeah yeah, the anxious, like, I don't know, replaying events, that kind of internal monologue. Um, and I don't know, it's like, t you know, taking back to The Shining a little bit, uh, I feel like there's been a lot of, you know, I mentioned Dr. Sleep, but there are kind of no multiple examples that are very interesting to me of like people replaying The Shining, which I think is just interesting because it does feel so explicit to me in that sort of like, I don't know, dream logic simulation of like, this is really a place like the overlook hotel is this kind of physical representation of like, of, of trauma or whatever. And sort of just like replaying that reinterrogating it, reacting it. Um, and I mean, like, that's like how the Overlook Hotel is used in Dr. Sleep because they go to it at the end and Danny has to like confront his memories yeah. and shit. But I think like the simulation of the the Overlook Hotel is also kind of I feel like that's used to a decent effect in like the original Shining too. One thing that's pointed out in the Room 237 documentary is that the space portrayed on screen is like non-Euclidean 
meaning like there's windows mm. where the other side of the wall the windows on is actually like a room instead of outside like it's impossible shapes yeah yeah um and so like there are i don't know just like there's like a couple uh sort of replays i guess of the shining that are really like interesting like um i guess i don't know i think that it's um made and used kind of interestingly in uh ready player one um which is obviously a movie about like virtual reality but the shining set piece in that is like probably the the standout sequence in the movie yeah they have to like one of the game competitions for this guy who like is gonna give somebody he basically is like the person who created and presides as like the king over the virtual reality oasis that everybody Mm -hmm. you know spends all their spare time in when they're not working at like 15 gig jobs Mm -hmm. um but he has this game where he's gonna give somebody if they earn uh the right to it like the ownership over the simulation and stuff and basically the games are just like a bunch of like nerd trivia and one of the things the to get one of the keys it's like hidden in one of his memory banks where it's like the scene from the shining and they have to go Mm -hmm. through and basically like solve this riddle to get to like somewhere in the overlook hotel where this key is hidden and he's like hidden a key within a scene from another movie to me i mean that movie is kind of interesting within the context of like spielberg's filmography though because it's this movie about nerd culture and nostalgia and he's made like so many movies that are like like very big cultural references um Mm -hmm. in the same way that like the shining is and so it feels like he's kind of like reapproaching like a fan culture that's basically like made of like people who were like young and impressionable in the 80s yeah and i mean the kind of target audience of at least the original book the movie maybe not so much but the book very definitely are the kind of people who like believe in simulation theory and shit and would be interviewed in a glitch in the matrix and so i think if you want to like you know take it as a critique or something or seriously like ready player one is kind of about like how fan and nerd culture are these kind of uh, just sort of solipsistic worldviews. Like, because I mean, this guy literally remade the world in the image of his interests and hobbies. Um, And that's kind of what these people who are all very interested in technology and gaming and computers do. They've made the world into a metaphor that they can understand because technology is what they understand um it kind of it it reminds me of a point that gets made in the adam curtis documentary uh all watched over by machines of love and grace which is sort of about like ecology and um the connection between like nature and technology and um there's just a lot of it that is sort of about how like with the rise of computers, you see just changes in like language and how people describe the body or the mind, you know, people describing it like as a network or like the internet or like a server or like a hard drive. And we have this new paradigm of understanding ourselves. And so simulation theory is kind of just like taking that what happens historically, whenever there's a change in technology and society taking that to like a religious level of like your entire worldview is framed by the technology that you use um mm-hmm. and i mean there's like 
some on the nose images of that that go pretty unexplored in like Ready Player One, where you have this world where people are like stacked on top of each other in ever decreasing amounts of physical space, but you know people mm-hmm. are like physically very close to each other but you know all in virtual reality everybody's on on their damn phone instead of living mm-hmm. in the world or whatever um a character that also briefly appears in ready player one i actually found this out recently just doing research into the game because i didn't catch the character when i was watching the movie but duke Nukem apparently is in ready player one um and i was playing duke nukem 3d recently for the first time because i reviewed the new duke deuce album which is called duke nukem and found a like i don't know it's just like very interesting how that game is such a like overt parody and pastiche of action movies from the 80s you know literal quotations from they live in army of darkness are duke nukem's like most famous slogans and he's such a sort of visual riff on like arnold and dolph and and van damme and Mm -hmm. um but also the games are all you know very titillating you know you go to the strip club and the movie theater yeah and you've got all these like edgy like oj simpson trial references and stuff like that um and so it's a very sort of like media aware kind of like metatextual like thumb in your eye kind of game like very not just very 90s very generation x attitude era kind of simpsons like a little bit but just more profane um but there's like a mod a popular mod for duke nukem 3d that's called the shining 2 and it's just like an overlook hotel level and it's just really interesting to me because it's just kind of like taking the shining as just this like um cultural landscape in the same way that the games have done for action movies um and and just kind of like replaying it and reskinning it and there's also i was just i don't know i was trying to find i couldn't remember the name of the artist maybe you recall seth i was just trying to google and was struggling to find it but there was this like really crazy like vr shining 3d like simulation of the overlook hotel that this artist did no Um, i didn't know about this this we have we talked about this like we shared some instagram posts many years ago oh wait maybe Um, it's um i think i may know who this is actually uh okay after cutting out a few minutes of googling uh the artist's name is claire hinchker uh and her instagram is n-t-s-c-h-k if anybody wants to see her bedazzle some some candy some juice boxes and stuff that's great but also she does a lot of great like 3d spatializations like she'll like take like mall photographs and like spatialize them and stuff yeah i think it's so i mean obviously there's an attraction to the space of the overlook hotel because it's just this like iconic space and recognizable but I also think there's something about it where people want to like unconsciously revisit it because as a cinematic space, it just radiates with this like energy of, of, uh, I don't know, kind of emotion or whatever. I mean, um, I think that it's just like, it, it is a, like a physical kind of metaphor for what horror movies do. So I think that's part of why it's so iconic too. In addition to the kind of visual, Mm -hmm. visual look of it yeah 
But in context of like Ready Player One, when they have to go into this memory of this scene, it kind of makes it into like a roller coaster a little bit. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, which I think is just like very much, uh, very much a kind of Spielberg, like, you know, reinterpreting emotions as sort of theme park rides is, you know, not hyperlink to our theme park cinema episodes here. Um, audio hyperlink, but um, I don't, yeah, like I, I, uh, it's also well, it's also thinking about the like kind of relationship between Spielberg and Kubrick, too, where like, you know, Spielberg took on AI, which was Kubrick's project. And, you know, that was very controversial. And but that's a movie that's also about this like replication um, because, you know, you have AI, like artificial robotic clones, essentially, that are all like physically the same, but then go on to have kind of distinct memories and experiences. Um, so I think it's just like it's it's <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know, you know, like it's like the, that's kind of like genre, too, where it's like you have these sort of repeated uh, constructs and tropes and and rules of the game, but every variation becomes its own kind of thing and becomes a little bit different um, as it as it sort of spreads. But I mean, I think the like I don't know the sort of this like mind the mind virus kind of thing, just like the idea of like this sort of image or idea. Um, becoming fixed in your brain and like changing you and changing your reality is like, you know, that's, that that's, there've been a lot of horror movies that are sort of like that. Um, and, and are sort of about that kind of phenomenon. I mean, I think that like a very literal example almost is like the ring, um, which definitely empty man has some ring vibes because there's a lot of folders and archives and like, kind of the, the the archive of your mind a little bit you know i think both of those movies are sort of about like archive fever and like really losing yourself in this like investigation um mm -hmm. but like you know the tape in the ring is is kind of a meme you know it gets it forces you to hit retweet it forces you to pass it along and spread it to other people and um and the Ring franchise, you know, spread kind of across media and across international lines, like first being a, a book about the Internet and about uh, or, you know, about just like digital technology uh, and then being made into the Japanese movie Ringu, which then had sequels and spinoffs and then obviously was adapted in America by Gore Verbinski. Um, but then like, it's really interesting that kind of, you know, that there was that whole like J horror remake wave in the two thousands, but actually like a lot of the original Japanese filmmakers were involved in the remake somehow. Like the guy who remade the grudge movies is the same filmmaker who made the Japanese grudge movies. And the director of the American ring Two is the original director of the Japanese ring movies. So it's just this kind of like, it feels almost like, you know, one medium, had to pass this virus on to another one country had to pass it on to another. I kind of speaks to like the nature of franchise filmmaking, but it's just kind of like 
people had to keep spreading the tape. And then, you know, a few years ago, there was rings, which kind of, I think, tried to take it to the Internet and make it a little more like about viral videos. But I haven't seen that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I think that like, I don't know, that's it's it's there in a lot of horror movies. So another I, it, it inspired me to, to, you know, watch The Ring. It also inspired me to watch Fear.com, which is like. It's a legendary title, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, it is a legendary title and also a cover that was kind of burned into my brain. I remember going into like a used games and DVD store in the mall as a kid. It was like super janky, smelly carpet and seeing a DVD DVDs side by side uh, for fear.com and Blair Witch 2 book of shadows and being really freaked out by the covers for both of those, which both of them have like kind of screaming disembodied abstracted faces. And also both of those movies are about people who get like really obsessed with things on the internet because Blair Witch 2 is about like fans of the Blair Witch Project who are really obsessed with it and driven crazy by it. And then it turns out to be real. And Fear.com is about people who go to this like live torture website called not Fear.com, but Fear.com.com. Um, and it's honestly, it's I thought watching it, I was like, for some reason, I thought it came out in 2000 and not 2002. And I was like, wait a minute, like. Olivier Asayas ripped this off hard with Demon Lover because it's a movie about like a live torture website. Like I said, people who get sucked into it. It has this very rainy, smeared aesthetic. The website design is almost a little bit similar to some of the videos in Demon Lover. And it's also a weird international co-production. A lot of it was filmed in Luxembourg, even though it's set in New York. And it has a lot of German actors in it. But it actually, it I guess just something was in the water in 2002 because Demon Lover premiered at Cannes in May of 2002 and came out theatrically in the U.S. in like October. I think Fear.com came out like September 2002. But uh, I don't know. There's, it's just another sort of, it's just about, it's about this like, kind of like all of these movies but you know kind of like the empty man it's about this like collective unconscious this sort of neural network that forms just like all of this dark energy that's connected through computers what is called the noosphere uh in philosophy and also in the empty man and the, the pontifex institute uh and there's this book called like the secret soul of the internet and like udo kier like dies while clutching this book and it's just about this like dark energy inherent in the internet and the last 30 minutes is like crazy fucking like visual abstracted nightmare which roger ebert described as it being inspired by german impressionist cinema which is not a thing Mm -hmm. German expressionism, buddy. Uh, get it right. I know you're dead, but still fix it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. The Ring, Fear.com, um, also kind of mind virus movies. Uh, and a final little, little one. Um, well, we have another movie that we'll talk mutually more about, but this is the last one that like I watched solo mode. But uh, Slender Man from a few years ago. Completing the Bye Bye Man, Empty Man, Slender Man mm -hmm. trilogy. The the man of horror. Yeah. The three men, the three wise men. Uh, which people really hated, really trashed on. And it is a very underlit, very gray movie. 
but it is kind of fascinating to me a little bit. And apparently like 30 pages were cut for controversy uh, from the screenplay. Uh, and it, and oh, it didn't. I mean, I'm sure the real life like controversies around. Right. Like it know. didn't show it in certain towns in like Minnesota or wherever the Slenderman killings happened. Um, yeah. For obvious reasons. The screenwriter, interestingly enough, wrote uh, Paul Verhoeven's L and is writing his upcoming horny nun movie. All of his other credits are like really trashy, like direct to video thrillers and true crime stuff like John Wayne Gacy movie and shit like that. But I don't know, just thinking about how Verhoeven is this like European who came to Hollywood and made these kind of outsider critiques of American culture. I feel like Slender Man almost kind of wants to be that in a way like you can tell there's definitely critique cut out. But there's this like voiceover at the end of the movie from one of the teen girls who gets swept up in the Slender Man. Uh, she says this whole thing where it's like he only shows himself enough to infect us. The more fear he creates, the more fascinated we get. We talk and write about him, share pictures, click on links, Photoshop images. That's how a virus works. That's how it spreads. Um, and they make, you know, the mind virus thing is kind of literal because they talked about how the Slender Man's like a computer virus, but in your brain. They also compare it to like Russian malware. Um but I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's just, again, it's like I thought it was sort of a interesting reflection in like how viral, you know, both literally viral and then digitally viral phenomena kind of spread and propagate and are both like things that happen to us, but that we also spread and participate in. Creepypasta. It's a virus. I never... I guess the name creepypasta, doesn't that come from like a play on copy paste? Yeah, because I guess it comes from like copy pasta, which is just like, mm -hmm. you know, I guess I guess that's just like, you know, like it's like text memes, text memes, you know, or like a proto version of that, I guess, is like email chains, you know, like that you just forward mm -hmm. to people. But I guess creepypasta is the literal version of that, which like I think it kind of I was talking about folk culture earlier and there is that kinship between like scary stories you tell in the dark old wives tales folk tales myths that kind of thing um and like memes and and things that spread virally it's a similar kind of transmission i think um and really just kind of a new version of that i mean it's kind of obvious with slender man but you know he's like a you know there've always been sort of haunting figures like that throughout culture uh, it's just a new manifestation with images Damn. also slender man yeah. two things real quick on the slender man tip one when the slender man is like inside the house the girls get like a like they see a like facetime video on their phone from his perspective of him like walking up the stairs the facetime is coming from inside the house kind of a great flip i oh, think okay. on the like first person slasher perspective um mm -hmm. and also it's a screen gyms production. So I was thinking about Rodney Asher's S from hell short about people being scared of screen gyms, <laughs> the screen gyms logo while I was watching it. Cause it feels like a similar kind of thing, like being scared of the movie logo, yeah. being scared of this guy, you know, is like Photoshopped into pictures. Um, but you, you feel it's real. You feel the energy. Yeah. Uh, the only other movie really quickly to note that I saw was countdown from 2019. Mm wanted to see it in the theater but i didn't so i had to watch it more recently but you know it's just uh, people downloading an app that tells you 
when you're gonna die how long you have yeah and then like demons are like like gig workers for this app i think yeah there's like latin in the programming code or some shit it's really kind of clever actually like i don't know it, it it's very much like horror comedy but also does hit a lot of like it has some kind of moments of melodrama and and more seriousness emotionally too but i just thought it was really this like fusion of like very contemporary technology and like old ancient religion um was a nice flip on like the sort of normal critique of that that kind of tech driven horror definitely yeah i enjoyed that about it but it's also i feel like it's a little underexplored with how much people talk about or they compare like their phone to like I don't know I feel like like sometimes people will say things about like demons being like in their phone or just like mm-hmm. like demons or just like I mean in general people talk about phones and stuff as being made by like magic and they don't really understand like how how stuff gets on the app store you know? yeah and how you download it and how it all works they're just I don't know yeah sometimes there's like this angelic or demonic like way that people see it where it's just very abstracted from like somebody making it happen yeah and i mean with the kind of idea of like whatever the latest tech is kind of informs sometimes our the way society articulates itself i Mm. think that uh you see that just over and over again with like different forms of technology you know i don't know like poltergeist you know demons in the tv uh or like you just i don't know i i just i don't have like specific examples but i imagine with like the you know the spread of the printing press and like the beginning of the novel i imagine there probably being a similar religious pushback of like you're spending too much time reading and not like in the fields or like you know or you're spending too much time reading fiction and not like the word of god yeah or i mean even like updated you know people like panicking about like pokemon training children how to like you know like talk to demons and stuff wow okay this kind of hits on some crazy shit for me because i don't know i was just thinking both about like you know the condemnation of like theater in like (laughs) elizabethan england um Mm -hmm. thinking about that i was thinking about sort of uh oh i was thinking about something i talked about in the last episode with like first person cinema i was talking about um that movie about the prophet muhammad the messenger um and the sort of like depiction of reality or recreation of reality and why that's an issue in islam um but also sort of thinking about like i don't know kind of critiques of like the influence of violent video games or stuff like that which is very much something running in the current of a glitch in the matrix but all of these over time all of these different manifestations are like these oppositions to basically creating another reality And a lot of times I think the sort of critiques of like violent video games or violent movies, it's not even like violence per se, because like violence is in the Bible. It's 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 more the issue is like creating a false reality or or creating a creating a simulation because it's it's even if it's not something that's explained put in a explicitly religious context it's basically saying like whatever i have dictated to you is the reality and is true you are choosing to create something that is not that and create something that is air quotes false and and distinct from that um yeah well that's always one thing that bothered me about like living in a simulation theory in general because um you have this like idea that 
we're living in a computer program um, that's created by some group, but it never really like, I don't know. It never really talks about like who like has created the program, but also like, yeah. I feel like the theory of it never actually touches on the way that like our modern world is like very like influenced by like a select group of people or just like the way that like influencing the way the world has developed has like taken, I don't know. I feel like that's always something that like never happens when people just like say we live in a simulation, but not to get like creationist, but it no, like, leans that way. But well, I think what it leans towards is almost like, I mean, I think so many of the fucking like tech pseudoscientific philosophical tech bros, like, fancy themselves after the enlightenment you know which was this movement all about like elevating improving thought uh or whatever but has all of these like you know deeply sort of regressive racist uh, sexist on you know body politics kind of to it um and i think they would sort of fancy themselves in the tradition of those sorts of of thinkers um mm -hmm. where was i going with this um, oh, but basically, like, I think that people who like believe in sort of like simulation theory think that they're like in modern day, like enlightenment deists, you know, they're just like somebody pushed execute on this computer program. They step back and let it run and things are just going their course. And that's just the way the world is. And I don't really need to ask too much about like who it was that pushed the button or why they did that or what their intention was with the program. I just need to like write it out. Um, you know, it's, it feels like, yeah, it, 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 but it's obviously, it's like, if we are living in some kind of simulation, it's obviously that was produced by a person in a specific society with a specific context and end game in mind. And so there is like, you know, just like the algorithm is biased and racist and shaped by the, 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 uh, blind spots and the, the, the flaws of the people who make it like whatever simulation we existed in would be the exact same way. Mm -hmm. but i feel like that's actually something kind of wrapping it all up that's something that like i feel like shines through in a lot of these because a lot of these movies are like you know in search of to quote that that book title from earlier kind of like the more spiritual or maybe the soul of like the internet mm -hmm. and they're kind of interrogating that whether it's through like divinity or like demonism and things like that but i feel like as i mentioned earlier people always view like the internet as this very like abstract place where just like things are just like there rather than the fact that everything on the internet like exists because of a person putting it there. Mm -hmm. I mean, that gets kind of weird with like different kinds of like code and like open source code where people like reuse other people's lines of code to like automate things or whatever. But I mean, everything on the internet is like come from like a person's brain. There's an inertia to the internet. You know, everything, everything that moves online is because of something moving IRL um and you know you need a you can't have a virus without a carrier without an empty man to spread it it's true that's why everybody needs to get the mind vaccine yeah i mean i think you know not to get too corny with it but i think that's one of the reasons why like the virus metaphor is maybe particularly potent now but also has sort of been over the last few decades like obviously like you know we're living right now in a particular kind of like plague pandemic moment. So thinking of things in terms of virus and disease is like a, 
a similar useful framework to like thinking of things in terms of computer systems. But, you know, I think that's been right. a tendency for a while because of, I don't know, just thinking about like art that emerged from like the AIDS crisis, you know, really just sort of thinking about the virus, you know, just thinking about like viruses and bodies physically in a very real kind of way and the change of the body and deterioration and decay. I think that's been mm -hmm. was sort of a framework for responding to that. And I think similarly, there'll probably be more kind of mind virus media and cinema in a way just because of the moment we're living in now or whatever. True. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's always one thing that I found kind of interesting though, with like, uh, like different horror movies and like sci-fi and the way they like respond to different things. Like another thing I've heard or that you see in like the eighties is like the kind of like bisexual or like, like more mm -hmm. like gay vampire. And you have a lot of like fear about like spilling blood. Yeah, and no. And all these things. Yeah. Like Tony Scott's the hunger is like 100% that. Um, yeah. Uh, in a movie. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, obviously like every movie is informed by its society, but I think that like horror so often takes on like what's happening in society and what's happening to the self or, whatever or what's happening yeah. to human relationships it's just like that's what it's about because ultimately horror is about like bodies you know being punctured pierced kind of like the border of the body being sort of abjectly torn asunder um and so it it's just very present there well i do know one thing is that this mind is emptied out yeah real smooth brain i mean that's the thing about being a tulpa that would be nice is you get to have a pretty smooth brain you just other people are controlling you you know i wouldn't yeah all these dudes think that they're the protagonist in a simulation but i'm not the avatar i'm the npc baby i'm playing on autopilot mm -hmm. it's like uh nick offerman says in terrence malick's film knight of cups you know, my life is just Call of Duty on easy mode, baby. Oh, my God. Real line. <laughs> I didn't know mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, at a, like a glossy Goodness. Hollywood party. That's what That's amazing. life is like for the rich and famous. Call of Duty on, on easy. Anyways, where can, uh, where can the infected find you online? Um, my Twitter is ASAP Sunscreen. And then we have the the podcast twitter is just at hotbox the cinema yeah uh where can people find you i'm at tremor girls on twitter and yeah we also have at hotbox the cinema on instagram where we post memes and and things and images that will get stuck in your mind and that will infect you and uh, become obsessions and you'll have to share them like the ring tape um but yeah, also we have now we have a little bit of merch, some kind of exclusive merch drops. We have some yeah. very nice stickers, um, which have a little little bit of a QR code, which is great for spreading, yeah. great for super yeah. spreading virtually. Mm -hmm. um, you have to use your camera to to go to a website. Podcast fever, mm -hmm. uh, truly. So help the spread. Um <laughs> And also we have some lighters too, if you want to get lit like us. Yeah. You just let it run. You could just get one and just, uh, do you know the burn time on it? If you just hold down the, 
I actually think that unfortunately they're like kind of shitty and it doesn't last that long. But uh, I decided that I would up the amount that you get in a pack for that reason. Also mm-hmm. because I have so many fucking many of them and there hasn't been that much activity yet. Uh, that much sale yeah. movement. Uh, but thank you. Thank you to uh, Ben, Bentio, Jack and uh, Lucas who purchased from us. Yeah. Um, hopefully Jack, I sent your shit out today. Hopefully you should be getting that soon. The others, hopefully you already have your stickers and are yeah. putting them all over the place and scanning the shit out of that QR code. Yeah. Just left and right. And then did we, te- did we put the email? Oh Yeah. Email hotboxcinema at gmail.com if you want to just send us a good old-fashioned, respectable message, an e-letter. Hand-typed. Yeah. If you want to put a, a, an attachment on there, like a creepy photo, yeah, uh, a, a stray video clip to freak us out, some files on our backgrounds because we're your tulpas, any of that's acceptable too. Mm-hmm. May not open the attachment, but you can send it. Anyways yeah uh, well until then i guess uh, keep on token
ain't I never try that shit, shit, shit again. Most of y'all wanna see some blood spilling anyway. My just, my just, my just fault. Niggas dying young on this every day. Lick, lick, lick your wrist. Messed up in your type of you to clock out. <laughs> had a face, but you should have had your fucking clock out. Most of y'all wanna see some blood spilling anyway. My just fault. Niggas dying young on this every day. Mmm. 